Funding for Elwood City Limits is provided by, uh, I don't know, uh, me, I guess. doesn't really cost much. <laughs> and from viewers like you. Thank you. My free time. That's what funds us. <laughs> Welcome to the next episode of Elwood City Limits, the episodic Arthur podcast. Feels like it's been a while. For you, dear listeners, it may not have been, uh, but for us, it's been about a month, about a month since our last recording. Uh, my name is Will Young, and uh, with me as always is uh, Lucas Mancini. Hey, Hello. Lucas. And it's good to be back, and we are going through uh, Arthur, the PBS show Arthur episode by episode, and we are happy to be back to it because this one... Uh, this one is, uh, I, you know, I didn't realize it was going to be this early in the season that we were getting this one, but I'm very, very happy because uh, these are two these are two favorites, I think, for uh, different reasons. We sort of needed a month-long break to prepare ourselves for this one because the first two episodes we watched, I was like, okay, yeah, this is, it's got the morals of Arthur, it's setting up the characters. I think now we're getting into the stuff where it makes Arthur so memorable. It's really reaching its stride with this third episode. Yeah. Of course, you can uh, email the show at uh, elwoodcitylimits at gmail.com. About any and every little thing. And if you want to uh, follow along with the podcast, uh, Arthur is readily available. Uh, if you uh, Google search it, uh, YouTube, the, there's a full episode rip of this one, which is the third episode of the first season, DW All Wet and Buster's Dino Dilemma. And of course, you can find them in various other places as well. Just don't tell the cops. Let's get to it. The first in our pair of episodes is indeed DW All Wet. And um, I forgot, so I forgot that the episode began with uh, child abuse. Yeah. It, also, a child abuse flashback. As uh, Arthur narrates their uh, arrival at the beach, DW is astride her father's shoulder, screaming, screaming she is. And... Like my, my God, the rat, the racked sobbing that is coming from this child is 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 like, and you and like everybody starts looking at them because like obviously if this was happening in a in a mall when this does happen in a public place, you you turn and look, you turn to rubberneck. It's a it's a really great example of like the voice work of DW and how solid it is throughout this whole episode. It's going to be a running theme, but like I forget the name of the uh, voice actress, but the voice work behind DW, especially in this episode, the range uh, of getting these screams out. I don't know about yourself, but I've done some voice work here and there, okay. uh, and we work in radio, so yes. you've had to yell or <laughs> raise your fo- voice sure. for spots, yeah, absolutely, uh, and it could be really difficult to. Um, make it not feel forced or get the right volume naturally and it's really impressive uh this dw performance well uh as we as we noted in kind of the first episode we uh took the time out to mention a couple of the voice actors and you're right actually i have an i have a note here for a bit later in the episode but it still applies here michael Kalos, who is the voice of dw oh so it's uh, a, 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 a a younger boy, boy. Uh, very very good performance especially here and of course this is the voice you associate most commonly with dw and for good reason because as you said a great deal of great deal of range and uh 
uh, especially a lot of humor, I think, is able, especially for such a young actor. That must have been, must have been really uh, difficult to find the right voice. So as they come in, come onto the beach, Arthur explains, of course, that DW is freaked out by the beach because of a visit to the aquarium that she made, which is going to be the beginning of the episode. Uh, one of my favorite part of the whole thing is just at the end when DW is getting nearer the water. She reaches out to Arthur's face, grabs his glasses, and goes, Arthur, save me. It's so dramatic. It's- <laughs> well, it's so DW. <laughs> DW is a complete drama queen, and it's the best delivery. Like, I remember that delivery so well. Oh, man, it's the greatest. So the episode does indeed start off at the aquarium. And then, so the first thing that I thought of, you know, DW and her preschool class are at the aquarium, you know, kind of like a aquatic uh, show of like seals and whales and stuff like that. And once again, we see kind of the animal hierarchy of Arthur in that <laughs> these animals, dogs, aardvarks, bunnies, uh, other types of rabbits, cats, let's say, Moose. Are wa- are, yeah, yeah, are watching these other animals who are not that high on the food chain perform for them. And so it's just kind of a weird thing that only, I think really only adults know notice or even could possibly care about. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where if you think about it for longer than maybe uh, half a second, it all falls apart. Yeah. Like, Arthur's got a dog, obviously, but he's Which, also friends with dogs. Who also premieres and debuts in this episode. That's correct. And, uh, of course, uh, the pal gets his own episode, but we see his first appearance here. So this one's a little bit of non-sequential storytelling. The first thing I noticed about this episode is, so it makes it very obvious, the start of this episode takes place in the aquarium. Yes. And that's sort of the uh, set piece for the first half of it. Mm. And it got me thinking, uh, our, this episode would have premiered in the early 90s, right? Like around 90... Mid. Mid-90s. Mid. And it got me thinking about like how much the public perception of these sort of like orca water shows has changed since then. People think, I want to say very negatively, when you bring up the word SeaWorld, people will react immediately negatively to Mm -hmm. SeaWorld. I think, uh, at least in my experience, we talk about uh, Shamu and the mistreatment of those animals and that kind of stuff. And I think there's sort of a different light cast on these kind of water shows. So it's interesting how much more, I want to say, naive or uh, uh, uninformed uninformed as a public opinion and was back then. And especially because in like media that was the decade that saw like the revival of Flipper. Free Willy. Free Willy. That Michael Jackson song. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so it was a bit more uh, it, it was definitely more okay. And these days I mean it still is. I mean SeaWorld's still a thing and aquariums and these types of shows and and whatnot. I mean, for goodness sakes, it was in Jurassic World. I just I just went to an aquarium this year. I went to the New England Aquarium Ooh. when I went to Boston. Nice. So, oh, Boston, the uh, where Arthur would have emanated from, WGBH Boston. Oh, look at that. All right. Maybe uh, it was the same one. Maybe it was based on the aquarium I went to. Oh, you should have uh, you should have taken notes. Um, so, DW and her class, of course, it's you know, it's 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 a water show. It's a lot of fun for kids. And then the person, you know, directs them to the Hall of Sea Monsters, especially the shark. By the way, Hall of Sea Monsters is the title of my next album. Oh, yeah. For, so before they get to the Hall of Sea Monsters, they're all impressed by this water show. Yeah. Uh, and one of the kids asks a very, uh, I think, important question. Yeah. How do they go to the washroom? DW herself actually does. Where do they go to the bathroom? And the trainer explains they go right in the water. The kids are disgusted, rightly so. Yeah. I don't think they understand chlorine and how it breaks down the bacteria. Sure. 
but this kind of poop joke, I think this is the poop first poop joke in Arthur. Uh, we also cut to the kids hanging out in the SeaWorld bathroom, and they're yeah. just as excited about the fact that the toilets flush themselves as they are about the water show they just saw. One of the kids exclaims, it flushes by itself! Which, as a kid in the 90s, was very cool. It's very next level. Very I, 2001, a space odyssey. <laughs> I was wondering if you are going if you were going to mention this, uh, their two kind of... Uh, caretakers for the for the excursion. They get into the the transition from the uh, from the aquatic show to the bathroom. When one of them says, "Speaking of bathrooms, <laughs> I didn't notice that. That's fantastic. It's great. It's just, it's just uh, like." And the teacher asks them, "Okay, is it time to go check out the uh, uh, what was it called again? The, the hall, hall, of, hall of Sea Monsters. The Hall of Sea Monsters." And the kids are like, no, we, we'd prefer to stay you don't in wanna, the bathroom. You don't want to spend all day in the bathroom. Yes, we do. <laughs> oh, that's great. And, and so the uh, they promise the Hall of Sea Monsters will make you lose your mind with fear. <laughs> I was hoping you Again, would get... the second time we've talked about Lovecraft on this show. Oh, my God. But <laughs> you will lose your mind with fear. These sea monsters are so scary. <laughs> Now, I could understand D.W. being scared of the water if she saw Cthulhu in that aquarium and l- did literally lose her mind with fear. Yeah. That would that would explain the hallucinations later of uh, <laughs> exactly. turning into an octopus. Oh, this kind of fits. I kind of like it. Um, I, but I do have a bone to pick with that announcement that she said, you know, come to the Hall of Sea Monsters with monstrous monsters. Yeah, the writers, maybe they were a little tired that day. Come on. <laughs> uh, so, of course, they do go to the Hall of Sea Monsters. And the shark shows up, and DW uh, is very fearless and uh, uh, just kind of gets in its face, makes makes a couple faces, and it swims away. But she's not as brave as she thinks because then this huge octopus just comes out of nowhere. And my uh, and so the, the octopus is enormous, and, I you know, I'm not – I haven't. I don't know if I've even seen an octopus in, in an aquarium or what have you. But my first, my first thought of this is, you have this big, this very big tank. How have we not gotten me- mega shark versus giant octopus at I, all? Do they to, just kind of? Do they mega have shark versus giant octopus has to have happened? Do they? That's, that's happened. Do, do they just have a thing at this point where they kind of lock eyes and kind of nod and leave each other alone, or do or are they? Or is it a constant turf war? Oh, you're talking about so. There is a there is a film called Mega Shark versus Giant that's, that's Octopus. That's what I was referencing. Yes, yeah. but you're saying like the octopus and the shark occupy the same tank in this aquarium. Especially, no, but when the octopus is so big and it'll just eat whatever's there, like why hasn't it taken a poke at the shark? Shark's clearly smaller. They're probably plotting against because I'm to assume every animal in the Arthur universe is as intelligent as at least Arthur himself. They're probably plotting together that's... to eventually take on the Earth creatures. The, the land mammals. That's terrifying. <laughs> uh, it's, well, it's also terrifying. The person that points out the octopus to DW, mm. a little wrestling reference here. Mm. He's basically the Arthur-fied version of Jim Cornette. He's he does, got, he's he, does, got he, does, a, he does look a little bit that way, doesn't he? he just he's got, got the southern accent, and he goes, that's an octopus. He's like a slim Arthur Jim Cornette. Now, when we see this octopus, my first first thought is I actually so the aquarium in New England in Boston that I went to the New England aquarium had an octopus itself yeah. uh, and it definitely was the most frightening animal there and they I can't remember if they had sharks but they had huge electric eels much like the one seen right before the octopus shows mm-hmm. up and which really scared me about the octopus is uh, ours were a lot smaller the ones in this tank I saw but they talked about how because they have essentially no bones yeah. their ability to expand 
and make themselves small is in, is crazy. So the ones I was looking at uh, were able to fit in these tiny jars that they had in the tank, but the little blurb they write in front of the tank talked about how it could basically fill the space of the whole tank if it wanted to. It could spread all of its limbs out and it would be huge. And that was like, there's a real visceral uh, fear to that. Wow. I mean, it makes me wonder like why it, why it doesn't. But I, I don't know anything about animal behavior. I think so. it doesn't feel threatened when it's in that tank. But okay. I think if one if I was to jump in, then it would expand and I see. take me out. Yeah, octopuses are kind of low-key, uh, very chilling i'd say so of course dw gets freaked out by the octopus and the transitions back home where it's one of the big points of this episode is that it's a heat wave which uh we here on the uh, east coast of the maritimes currently experiencing a bit of a heat wave ourselves so i could really relate with this as dw kind of uh tells the story of how she fought quote-unquote fought off the octopus um and this is where we get the first appearance of Pal, uh, unnamed, just kind of their uh, small yellow dog, doesn't have his red collar. And so I imagine that this is probably not long after Arthur probably trained him, because I don't know, I don't know when he got the red, because when, when he was still kind of being housebroken, he didn't have the collar. And then, right, and it's non-sequential, like you said, so... Yes. Um, uh, If we're going for any kind of visual continuity, which we definitely don't have to, it is a children's cartoon. (laughs) Uh, But he's very cute, and and I'm a big fan of Pal, and I'm looking forward to having him on the show uh, relatively soon in the season. I think I wrote right about here uh, Michael Callis' great performance of DW because uh, Pal – licks her hand when when you know Arthur's like I bet you were scared and then DW's like I was not and licks her hand and she's like, ah! like like a real a real top of the throat scream oh like, the screams are so great we couldn't even begin to try and imitate them to do them justice the, the, the uh, kind of vocal flexibility that only young kids have and I it's crazy we talk about like there's images from Arthur that are still in my mind from when I was a kid that I very remember, especially even in this episode, the mm-hmm. two uh, sequences we're going to hear about. Uh, there's images that I totally remember to this day. But even more so, I was surprised by how much specific lines and specific like screams right. or, or musical stings yeah. stuck out in my head so much more. Because when they get good ones early on, like they recycle the crap out of those. But like, e- you hear those a lot. But even like specific deliveries, yeah. like uh, DW's deliveries and stuff on certain lines in this episode, uh, they stick out so much. They're so, uh, to me at least, iconic. Yes. I'm not sure to anyone else. No, I definitely I definitely relate with that as well. Uh, and so Arthur goes a little bit of the extra mile while DW's taking a bath that night uh, alone, which is weird for a four-year-old. Uh, took me a little bit of a longer time to be able to bathe on my own, but uh, whatever. She's uh, clearly quite intelligent for her age, and Arthur surprises her with a octopus on a line, which is just a spider, and uh, <laughs> DW just runs, runs, bu- gets Buck and runs out of the bathtub. And the, like my favorite thing is that she runs into her parents' room, opens the closet, and s- the closet of her parents' room, not her room. <laughs> which is about the same distance from the bathroom, runs to her parents' room in the closet and slams the door with, like, the bubble bath only obscuring her, her nudity. And her mom's reaction is the best. Like, she's just in there reading, sees her daughter run in, like, completely naked except except for bubbles, and slam the closet door. She goes, what the? <laughs> like, just, just a perfectly placed, yeah. just a perfect what the? 
that line that's, that's stops uh, right when it needs to. She's yeah. the the level of surprise is perfect. Uh, when Arthur's sneaking up on DW with the spider, aka octopus, mm. there's a great off-brand Jaws theme that they use. Uh, it's like a few chords off where it's almost exactly the Jaws theme, which they also used when the shark showed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, appropriately enough, yes, you're right. Of course. And goes along with their kind of also pseudo psycho sting at, right. the, at the end of they, that. They, and it's not the only thing they uh, rip from movies for this particular episode. There's specific lines that I think have to be throwbacks to like 80s films. Sure. You can really see uh, the age of the people who would have been working on Arthur at, the, uh, at this time would have been well within that group where they would have grown up with these 80s movies because mm-hmm. those references are strewn throughout. For sure. So, of course, Arthur gets in trouble for that. Um, and then we cut to uh, DW. Well, what, well, first, we cut to what is clearly a dream sequence of Arthur being uh, menaced underwater by an octopus. And, like, th- like, when I really thought about this, this is really – this is pretty dark because it's like Arthur's underwater. Like, he's he's running out of air real soon, and that octopus is making some – like real slow moves on him, and I do not like the designs that it may have for him. No, there's a real again. Uh, it's very Lovecraftian. There's a real the old ones that dwell below kind of vibe to it. Of not only Arthur being uh, probably going to be suffocated by this octopus, yeah. but also he's just drowning, which is horrifying for any kid's cartoon. It's, it's, a drowning dream sequence because I think that's a pretty common nightmare as well. Yeah. So uh, people can relate to the fear. Of your lungs filling with yeah, water. Jeez, shouldn't shouldn't describe it in too much detail, but uh, yeah. And then, but of course, it's not Arthur's nightmare. It's D.W.'s pleasant dream as she is sm- like smiling a big old grin uh, as she is uh, uh, fast asleep, which is kind of a snapshot of a journey with me into the mind of a maniac. Is well, D.W. before that, she lets us know the uh, us the viewer know just how much she was upset with Arthur. Mm. Uh, she tells her parents when her mom scolds Arthur, she tells him to go to his room. Uh, D.W. says, don't come out until I say so. <laughs> uh, and not only that, but she uh, her, the parents ask, D.W., are you okay? And she goes, I hope an octopus eats Arthur. So yeah. at least in her dreams, her wish came true. Yeah. So, or well, we can only assume. And thankfully, didn't get to that part. Uh, so Arthur's first up uh, the next day, and of course, as they said, going through a heat wave. Great move by him, freezing a shirt. <laughs> Have not done that yet. Can't believe I haven't tried it. Yeah, it's a great reminder. It gets really hot in my apartment. I don't have air conditioning, and I sleep a lot like Arthur's parents are when we see them reacting to the heat wave. They're kind of strewn about above the covers oh, yeah. with the fan going, very similar to how I'm currently sleeping. It's very do the right thing, if you remember that movie <laughs> yes. taking place during yeah. a heat wave. Oh, yes, I do. And uh, uh, I got to steal the freezing the shirt, or at least freezing my boxer shorts. Ooh, uh, that's not a bad idea. Except, it doesn't make the bed too wet. Yeah, that's the only thing. Uh, Arthur's doing it while he's awake. And so um, Buster calls him and asks if they have air conditioning, which he does in his dad's kitchen, which makes sense uh his dad a caterer i th- i'm not sure if this was the first mention of the fact that his dad's a caterer no because he's making some cool wrestling cake in an oh episode. that's yeah he was yeah. kind of u- using that molding uh clay and so i love that the so the setting they turn it to is unbelievably freezing cold <laughs> i wrote which, that as well which apparently can just make ice cubes out of thin air <laughs> like it freezes the air around it into ice cube form which oh great like we could totally use some of that well it's a whole nother level up from freezing cold there's sure. 
it's sure. unbelievably freezing cold. It's so cold you have to suspend your disbelief. Um, <laughs> it's sort of this air conditioner's version of uh, uh, what was that movie with the band? Uh, uh, oh, the fake metal band, and they had an amp that could turn up oh, to eleven. Was, uh, this is Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. It's sort of the uh, <laughs> air conditioner version of Spinal Tap's amp. That went up to 11. This one goes up to unbelievably freezing cold. <laughs> so, of course, they get caught, which I don't think should be that big of a deal. I mean, I know it's you probably shouldn't be using the air conditioner when you're eight years old, but it's just like, well, I, it's just him and his friend having fun. Like, really, I wouldn't get too cross at them. But except uh, their chicanery leads to the air conditioner exploding. It combusts, like, completely. Um, and it's not even like... I know in animation, often they'll use hyperbole, like things will happen unrealistically. So Wile E. Coyote, he'll fall to his death, but then be okay. He'll fall thousands of feet off a cliff. But Arthur's not really a kind of show like that. Like, except for the dream sequences, it really sticks to reality. Uh, But this is like a full-on explosion, a column of flame. Uh, There's sparks, and then we... It's a a step below Death Star. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And then it even shows the aftermath, and the air conditioner's totaled. Apparently, unbelievably freezing cold. They didn't take it through the proper inspections or something. That's going to get recalled. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's very – it's like the Toyota recall of those years ago where <laughs> Toyotas were going off the road. These – they should try and get a class action lawsuit. They could get some sweet skrill from a class mm-hmm. action lawsuit. That's a great idea. I love how dramatic Arthur's mom and dad are before they you know, say let's go to the lake, which is, of course, the most common sense thing in the world when, when it's a hot day. But it, you know, his dad's just like, that's it. I've had it. Like, looking right in Arthur's eyes. And, of course, Arthur's like, had what? And his mom's like, you're right. I can't take it anymore. And I'm like, what? what? I'm sure Arthur's just like, what are they going to do? Are you going to kill me? They're talking like Ryan Seacrest on the episodes of American Idol where they weren't the performance episodes. They were the elimination episodes. Uh And Ryan would be like, and the next person eliminated is not. Uh, yeah, he would really draw it out for the commercial. Or break. yeah, or just like will be revealed next. <laughs> As they're getting ready to pack up the car to go to Bear Lake, which DW is not for, she kind of assumes the uh the the victim position with her blankie. Uh cameo by uh, DW's blankie as she's kind of huddled up on top of like the cooler and just, you know, adamantly refusing to go. As they're deciding to go to their trip to the beach, it got me thinking, have you ever thought about where in America you think Elwood City is? Because I was thinking about the kind of climate they're experiencing, this heat wave. And I also, of course, thought ahead to, I have knowledge of later Arthur episodes. They do have a winter, so it's definitely not far on the West Coast. Uh, And so it got me thinking, uh, from the shots of Elwood City we see, I think it might be based off Chicago or somewhere in the really? Ameri- like a bigger city in the American Midwest, so like, like Minnesota so like Il- or Illinois. Chicago. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that they're regional. They don't have really any regional accents. Unless- That's right. Jim Cornette earlier let us know that that guy I was did, from the south. Uh, you did say Jim Cornette, but like I don't, I didn't really find his voice all that southern. In fact, I didn't pick up on an accent at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, th- there isn't really a consistent accent, which of course would really regionalize the show, which you don't really need to do. It's kind of for everybody. But right. it's, a- it's very Springfield esque. Yeah, it's supposed to be in everywhere town but i've you know i've never really thought about it but that's a good point like we already know to eliminate the west coast because indeed they do get uh pretty 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 heavy winters they can get too i think either because they go to the woods and stuff either chicago or minneapolis those are my guesses of where it's based on 
Not bad. Uh, I wonder if there's uh, perhaps where I don't know where Mark Brown would have grown up. Mm. And That's interesting. That's a good idea. To yeah, look I'll, that have, up. I'll have to look that up for next episode. So of course they go to Bear Lake, uh, Arthur Buster and the family. Um, what's your kind of your experience with swimming? Like, are you much of a are you much of a swimmer? So I used to be. It's funny. There was a point in my life where I just hard stop, pretty much stopped swimming altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pretty much around my early teens. Uh, nowadays, I hardly ever swim. It's just not something I find fun. I just kind of find it kind of boring. Yeah. Once you get in the water, it's like, all right, what do I do now? Okay. But uh, uh, I used to. We live uh, fairly close to Shuby Park in Halifax. Yes. So that's got a great lake there. Uh, and I used to swim there all the time in my childhood. Okay. I took swimming lessons at a very early age and did it until I was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say preteen. Oh, no, I was just pointing you. What level did you get to? Oh, I got to, uh, so from AquaQuest 12 was where I stopped. I think I was AquaQuest 7. So okay. you got far there was, longer than me. There was one uh, There was one level of AquaQuest. And by the way, uh, AquaQuest, I don't even know if they still do it, but it is. A, it, was a, it was a program, I want to say, at least in Canada, where it was kind of different levels, almost like a uh, – uh, school slash academic approach to swimming lessons where every every level was kind of based towards an age group uh, and you would just kind of do you would have to fulfill whatever the level called for like I, I think I re- had to redo six or or eight tw- like three times and it was like it really it, like it really messed with my head I remember like I fa- I failed twice at it it was it, and now that I think about it it was really one of the first experiences of like trying my best and still failing which is a t- which is a terrible terrible feeling but it is necessary in the development of you know especially a young person and, and especially considering like before that I think I had like earned two badges in like one go so yeah so they gave you physical badges with the yes. AquaQuest number yeah, yeah, yeah. on them yeah. and so my parents probably signed me up just to teach me the basics of swimming cuz yeah. AquaQuest 1 is like you still have floaties on and you're oh, doing yeah. the doggy yeah, paddle yeah. Uh, and I remember once I got past, like, the basics, probably around five, I hated, hated, hated doing the swimming lessons. Yeah. And AquaQuest 7, we were doing stuff like butterfly stroke and backstroke. And at that point, I just didn't see the point because I knew how to basically float in the water without drowning. And that's all I wanted to know yeah. as a kid. Eventually, I think the way the AquaQuest system worked was you were building your up. If you got to a certain level, that was, like, lifeguard certification. Yes. Like, after After 12 was when you could go into, like – bronze star and and like when you would be competitively swimming or you could do the lifeguard program and I wasn't interested in doing either and really it's up to the parents discretion like my mother wanted to see me through the whole way just so I could be a proficient swimmer which I am and I often forget how much I really like to swim because I don't do it I hardly ever do it and it's just because I'm not really near a beach I only recently got a car so I you know don't really have a means of getting myself to a beach I don't really go to a pool anymore and but I do I love to swim and I and it's something I forget a lot. If I was definitely going to swim these days, it would definitely be in a beach or a lake because I've this year alone <laughs> read way too many opinion pieces or uh, hot takes about just what a vacuum of disease a cesspool, public a pool, cesspool. yeah a cesspool is the word I'm looking for cesspool of disease public pools are turns out that chlorine it ain't doing all you think it is yeah and of course I think that's more appealing to a kid being in like a, a pool with like a bunch of people in there now that I'm older it's just like I can really see the appeal of the adult swim you realize oh that's why the kids pool was so much warmer than the adult pool oh, oh don't okay, oh don't, ooh, don't tell me that don't tell me that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Yuck. So, of course, they're going there. Uh, Buster's thing is that his mother is making him wear a swimming cap for his ears, which, of course, is, you know. Ugly. It's very ugly. It's it's a pretty gaudy Ew. swimming cap. And I always wondered, even as a kid, I didn't understand this fully. But I don't know what the implication is supposed to be why Buster is supposed to wear this swimming cap over his ears. Because he, later in this episode, swims fine without it. So it's not a safety thing. I assume it's for, like, aesthetic reasons why people wear swimming caps in the real human world. It's so they don't mess up their hair, right? Well, and I think, but I think in this case it's also probably his, well, because as his mother is characterized early on, she's a bit of a worrywart. And I feel like it's probably to prevent water getting in his ears, which, of course, can lead to swimmer's ear and stuff like that. And he's, his, his ears are so big that it, that could probably very easily happen. I always assumed that that was why she was so insistent on it. When Arthur and Buster are kind of uh, racing to the to the water, they're just like, ready, set. And then it cuts to Kate and she just goes, go. And Is that her first really line in the series? I guess that would be her first word, and uh, she she looks really cute. So Francine and Muffy join them as well. They're kind of you know get up to some get up to some fun, and DW's kind of hanging out on the beach. Her mom finds her and kind of convinces Arthur and Buster to kind of play with her for a little bit. They're in one of those classic like army tents. I remember always being jealous of Arthur. Those tents that are a perfect triangle. Yeah, you can't really buy those these days. Tents look a lot more complex. Yeah, they're and a lot more geometric, sophisticated, dome like. And I remember as a kid. I used to go camping with my dad a lot, and I always okay. feel jealous because I was like, these tents don't look like the one from Arthur. <laughs> but they're probably a lot better and easier <laughs> to set up. I, I was, I was, I never camped with my family, and I'm not generally a huge fan uh, from the exper- from the like one experience I had. Arthur and Buster play with DW for a little bit, and then they get back to the water, and DW won't go in. And she's talking with her dad, and I actually, I this is the first time I've ever noticed this. So her dad's laying down; they're under the umbrella. And he's kind of got his eyes closed, just kind of resting a little bit. And then a woman walks by, and you can kind of see him, like, open his eyes a little bit and, like, open an eye and kind of check her out. Like, he totally checks out that woman. And, like, if you go, like, if you watch the episode about 10 minutes in, like, and you just see him open his eye a little bit and then go back down, it's like, he totally checked that girl out. Arthur's dad is such a great character. The writers really play with him along the course of the series. I mean, of course, it's a lot more mild because it's a children's show, but he really resembles the same kind of uh, tone of Stan's dad from South Park. He's that same kind of goofy dad character that's mm. sort of supposed to be the all dad the living embodiment of a dad joke basically yes, absolutely. Uh, that's the space that Arthur's dad occupies and it's really fun his wackiness really gets to gets to come out as this as the series goes along and I do like Arthur's dad a lot Arthur and his friends start fooling around with the swimming cap and you know pretending it's an octopus and DW is concerned because she thinks it's a real octopus and Arthur's dad kind of rolls over just like not now DW just like he has probably heard this night and day. Like for like the last day, he has probably heard it twenty four, and he is d u n done. This is his one chance to sleep on the sand with his white t shirt on, which yeah. I you get that shirt really dirty. But he's so tired and relaxed, he does not care. It's so hot, he's just he just wants to take a load off, and this kid won't stop barking at him about octopuses that don't exist. Now, before we get into this, uh, D W uh, is playing with Arthur and Buster yes. uh, before they get bored of playing with her. And the reason is they she offers all these games for them to play. Well, no. So Arthur and Buster offers these games to play. And yes. one of Buster's suggestions is actually pretty violent for children. Commando Raid mm. is a game he suggests playing. And it sounds pretty cool. I'd like to play Commando Raid. I, was, I wonder what the rules are. I was always curious what Buster meant by Commando Raid. Like I didn't I, I thought that was an actual game. 
I wonder what Buster would think of The Raid 2. Would he be into that movie? I bet he'd like it. Oh, I he be- seems like he's got good taste. Oh, I bet you Buster when he I bet you Buster when he's like in in college, I bet he's all about those movies. I bet he's got a Fight Club poster in his dorm. <laughs> oh no, Buster's that kid. Well, he- you haven't really seen Pulp Fiction until you've seen it in the this order that some fan made. I'd say, online. I'd say I'd say he's a milder version of that. I wouldn't say that he's <laughs> he's all the way that, but I th- definitely think there's that in him or at least maybe I'm projecting that into him. Uh, so DW is determined to save Arthur, and it's it's quite it's it's really adorable because she gets she gets the lifeguards help off Cameron's. It's like she's swimming to him, and it's really just the lifeguard kind of moving her. It's just like that's, such a great that's, visual that's, guy. That's really cute, and it's just like as much as she you know dreamed about his literal death at the hands of an octopus. It's it's kind of nice that she kind of comes to him when she thinks he's in need. The way they frame it is so funny because uh, the first the camera cuts to DW swimming to what she believes is to save Arthur's life, and the camera is a really close-in shot of DW, so it looks like she's heroically swimming herself. Yeah. And then it's a zoom out, and it's the lifeguard holding her up completely. So DW is just kind oh, of— Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's totally hip-deep. <laughs> um, and so, of course, they were just fooling around. Lifeguard gets after them and then forces Buster to wear the swim cap again, which by this point they have already filled with sand and, like, water. It must be disgusting. If you hit somebody with that, you could do some serious damage. Yeah. Uh, Muffy points out Muffy's got a really morbid mind. Muffy screams, it looks like a dead octopus, very matter-of-factly. It does, though, since, uh, I mean, she's not. she's definitely not wrong. And so the the mystery of swimming and the ocean is kind of debunked for DW by the lifeguard. Of course, there are no octopuses in the uh, octopi, excuse me, in the lake. And then after that, she just spends the rest of the day in and around the water. And we cut to as the sun is setting and she's kind of making Arthur be her horse and kind of buck her backwards into the water. She's having the, she's having the time of her life. And it's just like that's. You know, it's the kind of joy that you get as a kid when – if you really enjoy swimming and, like, I would get it all the time of just, like, I would stay at the uh, swimming club that my family and I would belong to and I would just stay there from afternoon until sunset and I would just never want to leave because I loved swimming so much. And so that's the same thing uh, that DW has now and, of course, on the way on the way back to the car she – falls asleep because of course well even now like as an adult like after I swim because it it really is quite a workout if you move around a lot and I just get out of there and I'm just like okay I gotta take a nap I'm bushed yeah she she has so much fun she tires herself out and we get this this shot of the sunset as the sun's going down over the water and what I thought was going to happen was I thought they were gonna have a little a little twist at the end and an oct I was so certain this was gonna happen too that an octopus would poke out over yeah. the horizon, out of the water, or at least something like an orca or something. Sure. But it didn't happen. Because Arthur sometimes dabbles in magic realism, so mm-hmm. it wouldn't be outside of the question. Uh, okay, so that's DW All Wet. Um, the the episode that I – or the the video that I watched of these two episodes uh, didn't have a word from us kids for this one. Yeah. But I re- actually remember it, and it was where these people, I guess, who work in an aquarium brought in different, like, animals that you can transport. So, like, sea clam- cucumbers. clams, sea cucumbers. Oh. oh. Uh, you have, like, little fish and stuff. So I just, they're just kind of, like, you know, playing with fish and all that sort of stuff. Every, every field trip we ever went to, like, the Marine Biology Museum uh, or the local, whatever it was, the Marine Biology Facility, mm. and they had the touch tank where you could reach in and touch the, the crabs and all these different things. Uh, everybody was touching those sea cucumbers. 
man, something about those sea cucumbers, for me, I just, I don't like looking at them. I don't like touching them. They're squishy. They don't have any discernible features whatsoever. Sometimes they shoot stuff out and it's real weird. They're like a living version of those things you would buy from the dollar store where if you squeeze them, they slip out of your hand over and over and over again. Sea cucumbers and me, they just don't get along. So if I was in that episode, they'd pan up from all the kids having fun and touching the sea cucumber to me in the corner, probably in the fetal position. They, they do not agree with you. Okay. Well, learning more about Lucas Mancini and his, uh, his uh, dislike of sea cucumbers. And, of course, naturally we go from sea cucumbers to uh, uh, their natural link in the animal kingdom, dinosaurs, <laughs> for Buster's Dino Dilemma. Now, we talked about swimming. Uh, you kind of mentioned your experience with camping. What was your feeling on dinosaurs when you were uh, little? So uh, when I was a kid, I was way into robots, but I had a next-door mm. neighbor who was way into dinosaurs, and yeah. he was French-Canadian. So <laughs> I remember this so vividly. He had every single Land Before Time movie, and there was a lot of them. A, yeah, the there, first one came out in theaters, but they made a bunch of straight-to-DVD, straight-to-VHS ones. The we- and the weird thing was is that I always watched the, – the one that I always rented was Land Before Time 2. I'm not even sure if I've seen the first Land Before Time. <laughs> but so there's – yeah, because the first the first one was kind of a big feature film. I think it was like yeah. one of those Don Bluth. It movies. was, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they just kept making them and making them. It was sort of the th- same thing as like the Lion King. There's like three Lion King movies, but nobody knows. Everybody just watches the first one. But the Land Before Time had about ten installments. Yeah, yeah the finger thing means the money, so they kept uh, cranking them out. And I remember seeing the row of VHS tapes because my next door neighbor he was so into dinosaurs. But here's the the dark twist was they were all in French. So whenever I watched Leyland before time, duh, uh, I just didn't understand what was happening. Le Ducky and Le Petri. Le Ducky and Le Petri. Uh, Jim Appel Ducky. Yeah. <laughs> so, of, so, of course, this one's going to be more dinosaur focused. I, I, I should mention, uh, I think like any young boy, I was, you know, I, I liked dinosaurs a lot. I didn't see Jurassic Park until I was a bit older. I actually remember I saw The Lost World uh, at, at in the, the in the theaters with a oh, friend of mine, and we wow. were right up at the front. I, I was not more than 10 years old. I think it was like eight. And I just remember be I just remember being overwhelmed. Uh, my parents didn't let me watch the Jurassic Park movies till I was about 13. And I remember, okay. or maybe even earlier, maybe around 12 or 11, because I remember them scaring me. And it's pretty wimpy for those to scare a 13-year-old. Mm, okay, yeah. Uh, but I also remember my dad always used to tell me this. I was a big Elmo's World fan as a kid. All right. And my dad would always point out that one of the Mr. Noodles, one of the actors that played Mr. Noodle from Elmo's World, yes. was a guy who gets eaten at the start of Jurassic Park 3. He's the pilot in Jurassic Park 3. Okay, so this is the weirdest thing. Um, <laughs> so I'm watching this YouTube channel now called No Small Parts. Okay. And I just watched an episode that was all about him. It's a, it's a, it's a YouTube channel about uh, character actors. Right. And, yeah, oh, my God. I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Uh, But they did an episode that was all about him, and he's fascinating. The actor's name is Michael Jeter. Like, they're all, like... It's 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 cool, like all of the stories that come from these character actors that you recognize their face, but you may not know their name. And that guy was featured in there, so that's, it's so funny you, you say that. Like, I literally just watched that uh, earlier today. Uh, great channel, by the way. Check out uh, No Small Parts. Really recommend it. Uh, I didn't see. Yeah, I didn't see Jurassic Park as a kid, so I kind of missed the childlike wonder of it. But I still, Jurassic Park is an amazing movie. It's one of my favorite of all time. And I had, a, you know, I had a couple of like dinosaur magazines and toys and whatnot. But it didn't really it wasn't really like a big thing. I just like dinosaurs. Like, no. and I shouldn't say like every little boy. Like boys, girls, and everybody can like dinosaurs. Will 
What's your favorite dinosaur? I know it's a tough one. I got you on the spot. Um, I think it's a Triceratops, and I think it's because of the Power Rangers. Uh, I think the Solid I, th- I, th- I think I think the biggest interest that I had in dinosaurs was the fact that the Power Rangers had three of them on their te- on their team. You know, three dinosaurs and two also rans of the prehistoric era. Uh, so I think it was the Triceratops because it's like the T Rex is. Uh, a uh, bit of an obvious choice, and yeah. uh, you know the Velociraptor is the one that all the edgy kids like, mm-hmm. and then the Triceratops just kind of hanging out, like he can kind of defend himself, and he's just he's just a cool guy. Like Triceratops is a cool guy, or at least uh, that's the way I say it. Plus, he's, he's a herbivore, plus, correct? Yeah, the yes. Spikes are just for defense. Yeah, yes. Uh, you know, uh, also big time respect to the pterodactyl. Uh, yes, know, the flying. You know, one of the only flying. Though, ones. isn't it not technically a dinosaur? This is so awesome. Yeah, we're getting. Is. We could talk about dinosaurs all day. Dinosaur enthusiasts can correct me till the cows come home. I'm never. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to learn it. Just I fully admit to taking all of my knowledge from Jurassic Park. Yeah, which is frequently incorrect. So I understand that, and we shall continue on. Well, well, I was going to say, before we continue on, yeah. my favorite as a kid was the one from Jurassic Park that, like, spit venom into Newman's face. Yeah. And I believe – see, again, we're showing uh, our weakness here, but I believe that one has been debunked as being two dinosaurs combined since then. Yeah. But how would I know? I'm not I'm not a uh, respectable paleontologist. Right. Like we will soon meet in this episode. And the and actually clearly the the answer is the Q-Rex because it's the best dinosaur. It's just objectively the best dinosaur. We start off Bust, uh, Buster and Arthur are well actually Arthur's talking about uh, when people in his life have kind of gotten obsessed with things. You know, TW's obsessed with playing a video game, Francine is uh, obsessed with shooting, you know, baskets in a row. A hundred baskets. And I'm like, Francine, I know you got to start small, but Michael Jordan did a thousand a day. You can do a hundred in a row if you really keep at it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> ball's life for Francine, as we've said before. And now Buster's thing is dinosaurs. So they're watching some sort of Jurassic Park adjacent movie. Buster's way into it and everybody else is freaked out. And then, of course, the crux of the episode is that they're going to Rainbow Rock State Park, where they will uh, hunt for fossils of all kinds, including dinosaurs. And, of course, Buster is uh, way amped into that one. And another clue, Rainbow Rock State Park, uh, depending on how long they had their bus trip was, it's another clue if we can figure out what cities are close to a big mountainous uh, Canyon Lake State Park like that. Yeah. Uh, my, to where Elwood City could be. My geography is really bad, so this is not my area of expertise. Uh, I, may get, I may get you to look into that. Uh, this is my favorite title card of uh, – because uh, I mentioned before that we had the uh, episode that was Buster-focused, and I said the one that I really like is the one where he does the big burp, and this <laughs> and that was that one. So I got a good laugh out of that one. So they get, to, so they get there by bus to, the, to Rainbow Rock State Park, and Rat, Mr. Ratburn in his, uh, in his uh, safari alt gear, you know, you press – See right two times, and you get Mr. Rat, <laughs> Mr. Ratburn's in safari gear. Uh, you know, please file out of the bus in an orderly fashion. Uh, to which Binky starts us off real strong with his Triceratops impression, which is very involved and he's getting way into it. And then, of course, the nameless bunny kid that follows him. I was just going to say, comes, who is this guy? It's it's one of those Arthur extras who never gets a name. And you know, after his poor T Rex performance, I don't want to know his name. Is, I, because Binky, because Binky, like does a good couple of seconds of like riffing on the Triceratops roar. Yeah, this kid just is like T Rex <laughs> roar, and I'm just like, oh my 
You didn't even try, dude. Like, you're here. Like, get put a little gusto into it. You must have not have seen the YTV advertisement where the kid's like, my thing's sound effects. Here's a T-Rex. Not only Mr. Ratburn wearing safari gear, but in one way or another, all the kids seem to be uh, getting their clothes from maybe the uh, the same Hollywood backlot that Jurassic Park 2, The Lost World, took place in. They're all kind of dressed like the villains from that movie who are all dressed to uh, hunt the dinosaurs. Yeah. They, everybody's kind of got that plain brown uh, khaki short outfit going on. Well, bu- well, Buster's a little bit between that and, like, the villains from, like, kind of looks like a Nazi from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was just like going to say, Razor, Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah, totally. So, and, because he, because he, you know, pressed C-Right two times, and that's his Safari, bu- Safari Buster, and I just want to know how Arthur got roped into being a pack mule, because his, his... His, his his backpack and sundry is five feet tall. Like, how did he possibly agree to that? It's actually, they really play into the imagery in a lot of, so, like, there's a whole genre of literature, like the lost world genre, uh, about, like, Don Quixote and all that kind of yeah. literary world where there's even the actual original Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Lost World, where they go and get the dinosaur. Mm. And they all kind of have those character archetypes where there's the heroic figure in his classical safari gear, and there's always his assistant who's carrying all the stuff behind him. That's a really classic Mm. Lost World uh, image. Wow, that's that's a good reference there. I I wasn't even aware of that. Uh, Very good. So they're met by Ranger Ruth, who's going to kind of take them through the, uh, the ins and outs of fossils. And Buster is showing an odd amount of knowledge for encyclopedic, how, encyclopedic indeed. He's clearly been boning up about fossils. And uh, when he raises his hand first, Ranger Ruth says, "You with the ears." And I immediately <laughs> thought, "Racist." That's what I thought too. I said, "I don't know, you know, what the relationship between the different animals and their cultures is like in the Arthur universe." Mm-hmm. But it seemed very strange to me that Ranger Ruth goes, "You." With the ears, I think it would be just as offensive if uh, I forget what the moose character's name is, but if she had referred to him George, George, if you she with said the horns. you with the horns, I I just don't think any kid likes being uh, pointed out to by the way they look. Maybe you, clothing, like I know that's what they were probably trying like, to evoke. You yeah, with the red shirt, yeah, you with the gut. You, uh, ew, see, that's that's there's. It just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, There's really. something not right especially about that. After, especially after seeing Zootopia, which was like, you know, I had all, I don't know if you've, have you seen it? I've seen Zootopia. So yeah. like, you know, the whole thing of just like, don't like don't call me cute, only like we bunnies can call people cute. And I'm just like, yeah, there's got to be some sort of line there. Because of course there would be racism in Arthur's world if it's <laughs> trying to emulate ours, because the world is terrible. I also I also appreciate how, you know, Buster drops some drops some mad science about fossils, about what they, the, like the textbook definition. And then as they begin the, uh, the little show, Brain kind of, you know, it's like, yo, Buster, that was, dude, that was slamming. I love that little character moment for Brain, because of Cause course- He appreciates good book learning. Yeah, of course, given his name, Brain is smart. Yeah. But he's not one of those kids who he always wants to be the smartest person in the room. I think he just loves knowledge. Yes, So it genuinely. was cool to see that excitement from him of someone else being the smartest person in the room for yeah. once. Just a, a real moment of camaraderie. Uh, so they have a little bit of a show about like how dinosaurs become fossils. And then at one point, the uh, there are two guys dressed up in a... Uh, 
Brontosaurus. I believe it's a Brontosaurus. It you know could be what, something else. You know what? Sure. Email Elwood City. Littlefoot. Elwood City Limits at gmail.com. We're wrong, which I'm sure we are. We have uh, to ask Buster. And, he would know. Yeah, really. And so the two the two halves break apart. And I'm just like, come on, man. We rehearsed this. Like, So could, I wasn't sure if could couldn't, couldn't be our first show. I wasn't sure if that was a botch or if that was a part of the show because they break apart right when all the dinosaurs start to die out or go extinct in this yeah. sort of play. Uh, and I thought it was really morbid because as these dinosaurs split in half, uh, the kids all laugh and they think it's hilarious that as far as they're concerned, this dinosaur has been severed in two. I don't know if it would work that way. I think it was just a production botch on their point. So then they go fossil hunting. And I've got to say, after seeing this episode as a kid, I remember being like, I want to hunt for fossils. And then finding out the process, it's not nearly this cool. Like, it's not really, like, nothing against, you know, paleontologists and people who genuinely enjoy this kind of stuff. It's like, there is a lot to enjoy there. But for the layman, like myself, who is just kind of being like, I want to find a fossil, not that interesting i think especially if you're a kid i think the problem is the expectation going in right uh we see this like this episode of arthur and we expect oh if i go on a fossil trip i'm gonna find a fossil yes it turns out in reality the chances of you finding a fossil is astronomically small because people have been looking for them for hundreds of years and so most of the ones that have been easy to find Easy as reaching into a lake. Grown-ass men with developed brains have looked for it. Uh, So those have all pretty much been found. So unless you have advanced excavation equipment, you're probably not going to find something like a pristine dinosaur footprint. Uh, One thing I do want to say, though, is uh, fossil hunting and its funness or not, uh, this park seems fantastic. It's a nice looking park. Uh, they're, they're in this canyon, and there's these walkways built sort of around the mid level of the canyon. So they're not on the canyon floor, so it's still raised up. It seems like if the kind of place where, if I was to look at it as a kid, I'd be like, I want to go here. This looks so cool. Very safari zone of it all. So they go, so they're going to go hunt for fossils in the stream, and uh, everybody kind of, you know, everybody kind of has shorts on, and they're all cool with it. Although I do appreciate that Mr. Ratburn switches into his flood overalls. You know, everything is coming up Ratburn as he's kind of wading in there with his big cartoony overalls that can clearly take on water. Uh, I just <laughs> thought that was really funny. And he already he... had shorts on, too. So yeah. it's not like he really needed to put the overalls over his <laughs> dress pants that he's usually wearing. Yeah, it's just like he, he brought them, so he's going <laughs> to get use out of them. So, of course, uh, the kids spend time doing that, and Buster spends quite a bit of time feverishly searching for a fossil, uh, even foregoing soda from the cooler. And just like when you're a kid and you skip soda, you know something's wrong. Everybody breaks for their lunch break. Uh, and so they lose interest in looking for fossils. They all go over to their lunch break, and Buster's still there because he's adamant he wants to find a fossil. And Buster, he wants to stay with his friend, but he really wants to go on break. He even exclaims, but Buster, they've got soda. Mm-hmm. And it's such a great delivery. It's a total kid thing, too. Like, <laughs> I'd be amped if they had soda. Arthur, just out of the blue, just reaches his hand to the stream, picks up the fossil of the episode that will become the crux of 
Buster's path through this episode. And Buster, great reaction where he just kind of stares, like shakes his head, and then his eyes become spirals and he becomes entranced with it. It's great. It's great. The music that starts playing is sort of the go-to Arthur uh, wacky music that when something – there's an action scene happening that's like – It's a a little bit elevatory and it kind of can go for like action or like intrigue or sort of stuff like that. I found it really reminiscent, I'm not sure if you remember this, but the uh, first level theme from Donkey Kong Country on the Super Nintendo. It sort of got that dun 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 If you listen to them side by side, they're pretty, they evoke the very similar theme, I think. I'll have to do that. I'll have to kind of put them side by side. But I don't doubt that you're right. So Buster Buster claims claims ownership of that fossil and he's over the moon about it uh arthur incorrectly identifying it as a leaf fossil so earlier when i was talking about certain voice moments being tattooed on my brain even more than images it's this specific delivery a leaf fossil a leaf fossil have you ever seen a leaf that thick (laughs) have you ever seen a leaf that thick uh it's so great uh arthur's just bewildered and uh, Buster delivers the line like he's Al Pacino in heat or something. <laughs> he's just chewing the scenery. You got a great fossil, <laughs> and you got your head all, all the, the way, way up, up it. it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's you're totally right. He's, he's because at this point Arthur could not care less about getting a fossil. He's just there for, for the ride. But this is this is Buster's to this point his life's work. So <laughs> so he is he is too he is too legit to quit, and he like has to correct him on that. So. Uh, then they all kind of gather around to share their finds, and then Buster finds out that is surprised to find out, shocked even, that they don't get to keep the fossils. And Buster, indignant white bunny, kind of has a little bit of an inner monologue of, I can't believe it. I can't believe they would do that to me. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm a patriot, damn it. So another reference to Indiana Jones, like we were talking about earlier. I'm not sure which character says it, but someone says word for word, uh, when asked where the fossils go, I think it's Ranger Roof, and she goes, "Well, they it belongs in a museum," which is a direct <laughs> Indiana Jones line, and I have to think that was on purpose. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, so Buster, not satisfied, he decides to st- stow it away in his huge bucket hat, in his Nazi hat, and you know, absconds with it. And it's it's interesting because, of course, from their perspective, and they will, and they like they directly tackle this in a much later episode, but. You know, it's like Buster is stealing it, yeah. But in this case, you know, compared to the later episode that I'm thinking of, it's like it's one of those things where it matters a lot to Buster and Arthur because they were, quote-unquote, raised right. And, of course, it feels weird to them that they're stealing something, or at least they feel like they're stealing something. When really, as an adult, it's just like, it's not that big a deal. It's a common thing that your moral compass develops as you get older, yeah. and you realize – there's more opportunities in life for shades of gray. Mm-hmm. So I remember there was a exercise where they asked all these kids about, is it right for a man to steal money uh, if he's doing so to pay for his dying wife's yes. surgery? Or, or, and, or, or, to, or to buy food for his family. Or buy food. For, I think or, that's what or, it is, or, is yeah, buy yeah, food for his family. Absolutely. But and kids right. will, across the board, always say, no, that's absolutely not okay yeah. because – from a kid, if you're brought up a certain way, you're told stealing is wrong, yes. not stealing is right. As you get older, you realize, is them stealing this fossil the end of the world? Not really. There's mm. far worse things you could do. But I remember when I was a kid, uh, I would 
Think about this scenario in the exact same terms Arthur and Buster do, where I would have thought, oh, my God, they would chew me up inside of it. Oh, my God, I stole. I've been stealing. It reminded me of when I was really young, probably like I must have been five years old, and I would have stole the blue putty from my preschool yeah. uh, the, that people would stick things to, stick yeah, papers yeah, yeah. to. Yeah, uh, And I remember my mom got really mad at me, and she says, okay, you're going to bring this back tomorrow, and you're going to apologize for stealing this blue putty. Looking back at it as an adult, it's like they would have never have known it was gone. It was not a big deal. But what my mom was doing was using that as a teaching moment to teach me the consequences and of co- stealing. And, and I totally understand where she's coming from in the sense of just like you never know when it's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Especially with kids, it's just like, oh, I can, it's like, you know, I can get away with this. Maybe I can get away with something else. It can lead that way. It might not because raising a child's really hard and not an exact science. But that's a good point. There's a great uh, sound effect <laughs> when the camera shows that Buster's smuggling out the fossil. It shows an X-ray of the fossil within Buster's hat, and there's a yeah, there's a ding when uh, the, the fossil shows up. Baby laugh. I remember, as, I remember as a kid when they're leaving. Of course, Ranger Ruth is saying goodbye, and then briefly, as they as they leave, Arthur and Buster see her as a T Rex, and, and it's Ranger. It's still Ranger Ruth's voice, just pitched down, just like bye bye now, bye bye now. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the second the... part of this episode where characters turn into something else. That's a common theme in Arthur. I think in the uh, DW it, All Wet, yeah, uh, a pal and Kate turn into octopuses during a dream. Yes, yeah, sequence. yeah. Kate, Kate turns into an octopus at the beach, like not even. Not even in a dream sequence, and yeah, and people turning into things. It's a it's a common image in Arthur throughout the series. They like to use that Cronenberg imagery of yeah. I'm turning into a T Rex, Bobar no, and then turning back into a human. Uh, and I remember as a kid that really scared me. Something about people turning into other people added to my list of neuroses. But I remember <laughs> I've never been more scared in my life than the episode of Spider Man where Spider Man turns into oh, Venom Spider Man. Oh, I, I I remember I was sobbing. Oh I, oh, I, oh, I thought you meant when he turns into the Man Spider. Oh no, it's oh, maybe that's see because when I was like seven at the time. Well, the, the, it's po- something to do with the it's the during the Venom saga with the symbiote. Yeah, see that see, see that see that's sobbing. Sc- that's scary too because it's welcome to uh, Spider Man the animated series cast by the way. But that's like the dream where it's like Peter's having the dream and there's like the giant black symbiote and the giant Spider-Man costume and they're both like huge and like kind of like dripping or like really oh, like so maybe it was liquidy? man spider i don't remember what but i remember but, uh, because peter, i was because, crying and i was like turn it off turn it off because i couldn't be, handle because it. peter just wakes up with the with the with the black symbiote on him uh, but no with the man spider it's like he's literally like transforming like he's got the he's got the six arms and then he like you know transforms into a giant spider and it's 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 messed up it's really messed yeah. up it was that Ranger Ruth yeah. and a scene from Superman 3 where she turns into the cyborg. That's... All those things, they evoke the exact same fear in me where it's like, oh, I don't like this. I don't that like this. That scene from Superman 3, I haven't, like, I haven't seen the movie, but I know I have seen that scene. That's effed up for a 25-year-old. Like, that's, uh, that's nuts. Uh, it was just like – and, it, like, of course, I think, of, I think about this way too much of people transforming into other things and just, like, the whole thing of just, like, she used to be a human and now she just isn't. I think we realized really the perfect storm of fear for me would be someone turning into a sea cucumber – uh, that's just that would be the thing that makes me lose my mind Ugh. in the Cthulhu sense. That's, that sounds that sounds gross. <laughs> but we learn more and more every day. If you want to email us with an ongoing list of Lucas's neuroses, if you're uh, a therapist, please get in touch. <laughs> Elwood City Limits at gmail dot com. Uh, so 
It's clearly weighing a lot on Buster's mind uh, as we go to dinner with him and his mother, and it's just a big plate of spinach. Just spinach on spinach on spinach. Like, that's it. There's no, there's nothing else on the plate. It's just it's just spinach. We've only really had two looks into what Buster's mom is like so far, and both of them give us a great insight into what Buster's mom's character is. Everybody as a kid knew the kid whose mom was a little bit more – how do I put this lightly? Like protective. A little, a little bit more protective, a little bit more involved, Fat. more helicopter parent than your average parent. More fastidious. So you can already tell so many things from these two moments of – one, she makes him wear the swimming cap. Uh, cap. She's so adamant that she, she sent, sends a carrier. She sends it by messenger. By messenger, which uh, – by telegram. Singing telegram. Put the cap on. <laughs> uh, but also – Pigeon. Sends, uh, it, sends it by crow. Uh, smoke signals. There's so many ways she has to ensure he gets this cap on. That's how important right. it is. But she also makes sure Buster has to have a healthy diet. And maybe I'm looking too much but into it because Buster's but, parents are divorced. Sure. But it could be an aspect of – because – uh, Buster's dad spends most of his time. He's a, uh, as we later learn, without, without, without a face, uh, without a face, and piloting an airplane. Yes. So he's all over the world. Buster don't get, doesn't get to see him too often. Buster's mom sort of has to carry that bur- burden and be as protective yeah. as two parents would be. So that's why she makes sure he eats healthy, like a full plate full of spinach, which isn't really healthy. It's not balanced. But the other argument you could make is they're bunnies. That's true. They're bunnies. So they're, it's either bunnies or Buster's on the Atkins diet. But they, but they never, but they never really go into like how other other animals like how their 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 diet is different. Everybody just eats like a person. That's so right. Those, Arthur those does are, not eat ants. No, so. this is a really weird outlier. So at school the next day, of course, like and of course th- this is something I could also relate with of just you know. Like, I don't remember if I've ever really stolen something, but just kind of the feeling like having something you shouldn't, and then just being like you can't ever enjoy it because Arthur's just like so when can I come over to see it and he's like you can't come over to see it what if my mom, what if my mom came in and then Arthur Arthur with a great point what's the point of taking it if we can't even enjoy it and it's just like that's a that's an awesome point and generally like a great deal of kids some won't but some will you know feel totally guilty and will like for me as a kid and still today I felt guilty about a lot of things and so it would just be incredibly hard to enjoy something if I felt guilty about it like nearly impossible there's a great montage of Buster hiding the fossil so his mom won't find it yes uh, and he goes to multiple levels uh, he puts it in a box full of marble. He puts I, I, it in a bag and then puts it in a box full of marbles and then hides that box full of marbles, marbles up in his closet. It got me he, thinking. He wraps it in tinfoil first. Right, which is kind of a weird thing to do. But it got me thinking, especially when he wrapped it in tinfoil, man, Buster is going to get good at hiding weed from his parents when he gets older. <laughs> He's already was, mastered those skills. It was, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Like, I have to give him props for that one. Uh, and, of course, and of course, as they're in the classroom, you know, Ratburn, who is none the wiser, to this, but just just for no reason, laying it on extremely thick of just like it's like I know you were disappointed you couldn't take home the fossils, but they are extremely rare. I got it would have been mir- it would have been miraculous <laughs> if you had found dinosaur this or that, or even rarer dinosaur footprints, and then Buster just pitches over. He can't can't handle it. It's getting uh, it's getting to him. He's he's soft. 
He's I was sl- thinking because, like, I feel like Mr. Rapperin should have maybe gave this speech before they went on the trip, taper their expectations a little bit. Because mm-hmm. I was agreeing with Mr. Rapper, and I was like, "You're right, Mr. Rapperin. It's crazy that they found a fossil in the river their first try because of how rare fossils actually are." Well, and and the brain also found a a, a fossil as well. So. Yeah, two for one. Not gonna happen, guys. No way. Not in a blue moon. So then we cut to over to Buster's house. His bedroom is invaded by the fossil police. Oh my god! And so this is this is this is really something. This whole what we later learn to be a dream sequence because it isn't pitched to us like that. It's so, so good. So the fossil, so the fossil <laughs> police is Ranger Ruth, and then the kind of stock police character, the bulldog guy, who we, who we'll see again and again. And so a lot of times in dream sequences as well. Yeah, a lot of authoritarian fear uh, playing out in these. Uh, uh, yeah. Rightly so. In these Arthur episodes, well, and 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 don't trust no cops. I'm kidding. There's, <laughs> there's lovely police officers out there. Well, see, see, like Bust, Buster's no Omar. Buster scare. Yeah, Buster, Buster definitely scare. Uh, this and this dream <laughs> sequence though, what makes it great is it starts out and you're like, okay, this is like that dream sequence from Seinfeld where Jerry steals his cable and then he gets shot to death by the police <laughs> for stealing his cable. And it's very similar where the police raid Buster's house. I, I guess the dinosaur police do not need a warrant. That's how intense dino crime is in Elwood City. <laughs> dino the, crime. The mayor's like. <laughs> The mayor's I'm, like, you I'm, don't need a warrant. I'm, Just break down some windows. We got to put this dino crime busted some doors. I'm, I'm pissed that dino crime isn't in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> But the big twist is that's not it. It's not just an authoritarian nightmare because the big M. Night Shyamalan-esque twist of this dream sequence it is, is not, it's not – the tip is not anonymous. Yeah. Well, not only that, they're not just looking for the, the fossil. There's a live dinosaur in Buster's closet. It's true. So they – It's uh, kidnapping. It's, it's, We're upgrading him from just dinosaur theft to full-on kidnapping charge. So the swerve the, – like the swerve is in – Arthur is the patsy. Speaking of soft, and right, right. Arthur, because, Arthur because, snitches because, on him because because as they drag him in, and this this is kind of cruel and unusual, and that they bring Arthur to the scene of the crime and make him face his, uh, f- face the what like own up to what he did, which is its own kind of punishment. Uh, is it's like I'm sorry, Buster. They made me tell. They tickled me, <laughs> and I'm like, they did what? It's and so I'm just like, up. okay, okay. I think in the realm of dino crime, there's a certain amount of leeway you can have with the law, but we're getting into some shady like i i think that these di- i think that this dino crime unit is going off the books it's like it's like they made it ranger ruth out to be jack bauer like <laughs> she she plays by her own rules yeah she's, she's a, like cobra she's like sylvester stallone in cobra she's a, she, she's a real dirty harry she's She's done. She's done with it. How many? How many dinosaurs did you kidnap? Six or seven? In the in the in the words of Cobra, uh, Dino Crime is the disease, and I am the, the Ranger cure. Ruth is the cure. Uh, and she'll dead or alive, you're coming with me. Yeah, by any means necessary. We could do this all day. Your move, creep. I am the Dino Law. You know. Sure. Uh, yes, I believe me. I could continue riffing on Dino Crime. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. We reason to believe you're hiding a dinosaur in this room, which Buster says is ridiculous. But of course, there's a sound emanating from the closet, and what should what should exit but an actual T-Rex? A real life dinosaur, not to scale. Uh, he's small enough to fit in <laughs> no, Buster's room. You don't say uh, in his closet. But it's also weird. Again, you think about like how the Arthur universe works. Okay, so we have animals that walk on all fours, like Pal. 
Yeah. And we have sea creatures that don't seem to be self-aware yeah. or have consciousness like mm-hmm. every other animal in the Arthur universe. Mm-hmm. And so dinosaurs, it's hard to tell. Is the dinosaur that uh, <laughs> Buster is illegally housing or kidnapping? We're not sure if the dinosaur came with Buster. I don't know how he smuggled that in his hat. Uh, exactly. Does, can he, the Buster think? Can the dinosaur think? Does he want to live in Buster's closet? Was he escaping Dino Prison? Well, this is this is the Mister DNA of it all. Of Buster in that closet, he's got his own Jurassic Park scheme going on. He's he's uh, what's what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? He's reverse. He's reverse engineering a. Dino- Dinosaur from the fossil, you know, get you know from the from the amber in the sap and making his own dinosaur. Nature finds a way. No, Buster, Buster finds, finds a way. A, Buster finds a way. But he he uh, he should have not been asking if he could, and he should have been asking uh, uh, if he if he should. Now, does the dino? Am I just remembering this wrong? Does the dinosaur talk, or is that only the the ranger? Ruth? No, that's only the ranger Ruth. The dinosaur is just a dinosaur. <laughs> bye bye now. Bye bye now. Yeah. Can't get enough of that. <laughs> so, of course, Buster wakes up screaming. It's a dream. A nightmare, I should say. And his conscience is getting the best, of, the better of him. So, incredibly dangerously, Buster leaves the house at night in his PJs, which Arthur kind of, Arthur, the show, does this several times, I think, and kind of makes it seem normal. It's not. Like, that's so, like, if I found out my kid did that, I would hit the roof. But because, like, Buster is just out at night in his PJs going to Arthur's place. Well, it's not clear what time of night it is. I mean, as a kid. Okay, it could be their kid, bedtime. As a kid, you're like, depending on how young you are, I remember at some point in my childhood, after SpongeBob ended at 7.30, that was bedtime. Uh, right. That's back when I used to wake up at, like, 4 in the morning to watch Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> but uh, depending on how old the kids are, which I think they're supposed to be around 11, right? They're, Grade they, 3? They are 8. They're 8. So it could be, like, 10.30. From the looks of the way the scene is shot and the lighting and stuff, it seems like it's 3 o'clock in the morning. The whole This whole sequence, one, the dream sequence, and then meeting to discuss this dinosaur, it's all shot and framed like a Martin Scorsese film. <laughs> like, there's Dutch angles in the a dinosaur nightmare. Yeah, when, right. when the reveal you're of right. the dinosaur happens, it's total Dutch angle. And I, I gotta think that was on purpose, because it's all very The Departed, or, well, this would have been before Departed uh, came out, but it's all very, like... Uh, casino. They're meeting in the middle of the desert. They're meeting at night to discuss this stolen so, dinosaur. So, Bu- so Buster's going. O- Buster's going over to Arthur, and uh, Buster doesn't know that Arthur has a wire on him. And so, Ra- <laughs> Ranger Ruth and Mister Ratburn are in the control room. Mister Ratburn <laughs> just grabs his shoulders, like Patriot Act, Patriot Act. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, I'm the dino cop that does his job. You must be the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's my favorite line from that great movie. Uh, so, yeah, but uh, Buster goes over to Arthur's uh, place, kind of gets his attention with rocks at the window. And, of course, as has been pointed out on the Internet in a uh, few memes before, they have uh, they have each other's uh, uh, face on their slippers. Right, a popular image on Tumblr. Uh, when they meet, they're both in their sleeping gear. Buster's wearing aardvark slippers. Arthur's wearing bunny slippers. A nice little touch. Yeah, it's really cute because they're best friends. Uh, so they kind of figure out, they kind of decide what they should do. And then what I can only assume is 3 a.m. They call Ranger Ruth up at the, uh, you know, because clearly she doesn't sleep. Dino crime never sleeps, so neither, right. neither does she. Uh, so they, I mean, kind of off camera they fess up to it. But they do turn in the fossil and uh, they have a, you know, local 
paleontologist or what have you, you know, local scientist man who is kind of, they're debating right now what kind of dinosaur it was. I love this. It's a look into the drama within the paleontologist community because he's totally bad talking, the other paleontologist. He's like, this doctor believes it's this dinosaur, but this doctor believes it's this dinosaur. And he's he's actually kind of putting it pretty lightly for the kids, but I got to think that there's just strife within the paleontologist community. Mm. Guys calling each other hacks. People writing op-eds like, this guy's <laughs> an idiot. This is obviously, have you ever seen a leaf this thick? It's obviously this kind of dinosaur. Research getting debunked left and right, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Exactly. Uh, and th- this is actually how I learned how to pronounce coelosaur because it's written, uh, it's spelled C-O-E-L-A. C-L- like co- it looks like coelosaur, but it's actually... Coelosaur. And so the episode ends with uh, Ranger Ruth showing them the fossil displayed and its dinosaur footprint discovered by Buster Baxter and Arthur Reed. And they give a, a good old cheesy white guy high five and the episode ends. So they kind of they kind of learn their lesson. And I think it's I think it's a kind of a good way to impart the the good old fashioned don't steal thing where the stakes are relatively low, especially because I'll I'll just reference this again and a bit more clear this time. There is a later episode in you know several several seasons from now. Uh, where Arthur and Buster, you know, actually do steal like a toy. So that 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 one's quite a bit more high stakes, and you know, actually has some big time consequences. This one is a this one's a bit more of a softball, and I think you, it's it's fine for come the first episode. I'm sure there's a paleontologist listener somewhere yelling into his headphones oh right now. It belonged in a museum. You're saying this isn't a big deal. It was an affront to science. It belongs you know? in a museum. So do you. <laughs> oh my goodness, brutal. So. <laughs> All right, so there you go. That's Buster's Dino Dilemma wrapping up the episode. Uh, what did you think of this uh, of our doubleheader this week? A great pair of episodes. I think my favorite, uh, personally, my favorite part of Arthur is when it gets weird, when it goes into dream sequences, when they have things turning into other things, body horror, Cthulhu-esque <laughs> nightmares. As body horror as uh, Arthur gets, uh, yeah. The last couple episodes we watched were pretty much uh, typical after-school special drama. Mm. The plainer. Uh, type of Arthur episodes, but I love it. Now they're starting to dip their toes in how weird Arthur truly can get. Yeah, you're right. And And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, of course, because Arthur, as it got more comfortable in its own kind of skin, I guess you could say. Formula. Yeah, in its own formula, then it kind of had the the ability to veer off. Sometimes it would get like a, a little a little too weird, but I, I do appreciate when when you're right, when we kind of go off script a little bit and kind of experiment with what we can do. Um in retrospect, uh, I mean, I, I do I do like both of these episodes quite a bit. I know it's like it's hard to kind of be critical of Arthur too much because, or at least at least for my because I have such a fondness for Arthur. But I I you know I try to give credit where it's due and also try to kind of address it where it's not so great. But really, I, I think that for especially for the beginning of the show, I think this the episodes in the first season are generally pretty strong. And especially considering like they had to lay the groundwork for you know one of the longest running kids shows ever, and I think that they're really showing it here. Um, you know, DW's episode, very good and, you know, a great spotlight on what is a, a very uh, varied character in DW. And, of course, Buster's always Buster's always a treat. And I appreciate, like you said, you appreciate when it gets weird. And it's, it's good when they're able to uh, weave in a message like Don't Steal with a relatively lighter episode. I guess a lighter episode for me as an adult or one that kind of just like it gets a little gets a little freaky with itself. 
So uh, I thought it was gives us a lot of material. A really great pair of episodes. Uh, always love a DW focused episode. Those are always really interesting because DW brings a completely different perspective mm-hmm. to the world of Arthur than the rest of the kids who are all relatively the same age. Uh, and uh, even more so, I like the Buster's Dino dilemma because. Uh, I really, I think Buster is one of the characters that I most relate to, so I always enjoy Buster episodes. He's, you know, I'm one of those kids who was pretty immersed in pop culture, and that was sort of the thing I was into as opposed to sports and stuff as a kid. And I feel like Buster's that kind of kid where he uh, he geeks out a little bit. He loves his comic books and Bionic Bunny and that kind of stuff. So I really relate to him. And I think that uh, the two of them paired together, Buster and DW, are kind of more like two of Arthur's more flawed characters. And I think mm-hmm. that I think that makes them a lot more real because, like, because like you said, you relate to you relate to Buster as much as DW is uh, like a little too smart for her age. Like you knew kids like that. Like DW equally plays foil and hero. Buster equally plays you know dimwit and you know sage. So they can they can kind of they fit into different worlds just because people do. And yeah. uh, I think it's important to show people is kind of very varied, which a lot of the main Arthur cast does get. Like, we've discussed that about with Francine. I think Arthur gets that a lot, too, before we kind of get into not one note, but less varied characters. Like you said, it's hard to criticize Arthur, especially in these early episodes. If I was to level one criticism, it's that uh, both of these story, well, not so much the DW one, but the dinosaur one for sure, uh, its third act kind of is a little bit rushed. I feel like because they had to use so much of their time for that awesome, awesome dream sequence, uh, Buster kind of turns on a dime in terms of what he thinks. He's so adamant about keeping the fossil for the first two thirds, even more, the first three quarters of this episode that it's only really in the last, I want to say, two minutes or so or maybe even less than that. Uh, he has a complete change of conscience, and he decides to do a total 180 on his decision. It's a quick turnaround for sure, and I, and and they they do it a bit better in uh, later episodes. So yeah, not, not the greatest here, but still very very enjoyable. As small nitpicks, yeah. As most of season most of season one is, and really, I think uh, you know, from my memory of Arthur, which is generally okay. Uh, I I feel like the more the show goes along, the more that it's kind of like it's surprisingly strong, like from the very beginning. It's as it kind of goes along that you can kind of find episodes that are just like not not all that good or kind of like weird and not the right way. But so for right now, I think it's it's doing just fine. And of course, I'm I'm having I'm having a blast watching them. So that's our word on DW All Wet and Buster's Dino Dilemma. Happy to be uh, back doing this. Uh, it was all worth it for Dino Crime, if not. Nothing else. Uh, I know. I think we know what the name of this episode is. Yeah, for sure. So thank you very much for listening. Depending on where you will have downloaded this, whatever you did, download us. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, if you have anything to contribute to the discussion, uh, to uh, any corrections, uh, anything, comments, criticism, uh, anything you'd like to send us, Arthur related or even not Arthur related, it's uh, ElwoodCityLimits at Gmail dot com. Lucas, uh, any final thoughts? Bye bye now. Bye bye now. <laughs> but bye now indeed so thank you very much for listening to uh, episode three of elwood city limits and we'll catch you next time